Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash apologia. But for now, let's get to the episode, part of the Apologetic series, posted April 1st, 2021, titled, Pile of Resurrection Evidence, Young Men Shan't See Visions, featuring Shannon Q. You may recall that in our last episode, we established that there is no fact of the empty tomb. If there is no fact of the empty tomb, then basically all you need to do is come up with the hallucination hypothesis. Exactly. Welcome to Apologia, where a former Christian takes a look at the claims of Christians. If you haven't already, please take a moment to tap on the subscribe button so that you'll be notified when new science, theology, and news videos come out. All right, we are back talking about the evidence for the resurrection. Just in time for Easter, we're going to return to our Once in a While series, covering Capturing Christianity's three-and-a-half-hour Loads of Evidence for the Resurrection of Jesus epic podcast featuring Dr. Callum Miller and Dr. Max Baker-Heitch. And if you missed the last however many episodes we've done, tap on the playlist above my head to catch the series from the beginning. If you haven't listened to those episodes, go back and do it. Otherwise, we're picking up where we left off. First thing that we're going to do in this episode, or this series of episodes, however long it actually ends up being. I think this will be the second last episode in my series. Last one before the series finale. We're going to talk about the different skeptical theories. We're going to skip over the refutations of spoon theory, wrong tomb theory, and conspiracy theory. I don't personally find them compelling. But I am a proponent of the hallucination hypothesis. Basically that the disciples, these 500 brethren, everybody who had experience of Jesus, they didn't actually see anybody. They were having hallucinations. It was all in their minds. That's partially correct and partially missing the point. I do posit that for everyone who had an experience of risen Jesus, they had their experience in their minds. But I don't agree that the list of such people includes 11 disciples, nor 500 brethren. In fact, as far as anyone has demonstrated to me, we can explain the history of the Christian church with just a handful of people. Maybe only two. Peter and Paul. Yeah, so with hallucinations, there are kind of a variety of causes for hallucinations, typically. And, you know, most ordinarily in psychiatric practice, we'd see them off in the case of psychosis, where you can get psychosis from a number of conditions like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, or sometimes really severe depression. Sometimes you can get it from drug use. And then sometimes you can actually get hallucinations in people with no psychiatric problems, and particularly in the context of bereavement. And so you can call these grief hallucinations, for example. And these are actually surprisingly common according to studies. So there may be a, a technical definition that I don't know exactly. <laughs> um, so I'm not intending to speak as an authority defining it here. There may be a technical definition? Yeah. Even though many of us seem to think that we are somehow psychology experts based solely on our intuition, we're not actually authorities. And while Shannon Q won't call herself an authority either, 
she's at least far more studied in this area than anyone else on this panel. Before we delve into the subject, I think it's important for us to establish what constitutes a post-bereavement hallucination. There's no specific category of hallucination type that segregates a post-bereavement hallucination qualitatively from any other hallucination. It's simply a hallucination that's brought upon by grief and manifests specifically as a perception of the deceased in one or more sensory modalities. Hallucinations are classified as incorrect perceptions manifested by the brain irrespective of the actual external perceptual stimuli. This can mean touching, seeing, hearing, tasting, etc., or any conglomeration of sensory experiences that aren't a result of what your sensory organs are actually receiving. People often affiliate hallucinations exclusively with psychiatric disorders like schizophrenia or bipolar, etc., However, they're actually exceptionally common in the day-to-day lives of the general population and aren't a mental health issue until they become persistent or if they are the result of an acute traumatic or physiological issue and affect the ability to function. I also can't stress enough that it's important for us to consider that this is a very real and prevalent phenomena that is affecting people today, and as such, it should be dealt with with respect and accuracy. Anything otherwise would be negligent. It would be a hallucination just in the context of grief, which is usually bereavement. So, for example, after Jesus' death, it would more likely be a grief hallucination as the disciples were bereaved. We agree. Most people don't mention them because they feel unable to talk about them or embarrassed about talking about them. According to Callum, most people don't mention them. But actually, they're, they're reasonably common. There's not a huge load of detail about kind of the age distribution, but certainly they're more common in older people. But they're significantly less common among younger people, such as the disciples. Now, I don't fully argue that the claim here with regards to age distribution is incorrect. I do, however, have issue with the inferences made based on the age distribution we see. We've established, I think they would agree here, that the only known prerequisite for a post-bereavement hallucination is that you've suffered the death of a loved one. Other mitigating factors can increase and decrease an individual's likelihood to experience a post-bereavement hallucination, but the only constant prerequisite in all cases is experiencing a loss. Now, with that front of mind, can you think of a reason outside of just increased susceptibility based on age that we would see more post-bereavement hallucinations in the elderly demographically? Take a second. Yep, you got it. There's a vastly increased statistical likelihood that when you're older, someone close to you is going to pass away. Just as a matter of fact, we would expect to see more post-bereavement hallucinations in the demographic of people who have the highest instances of what is the only established prerequisite, being bereaved. If we saw otherwise, that would be strange, actually, to be honest. So what would happen if we don't look just at the frequency of occurrence, but instead control for population percentages by death rate, for example? Something interesting pops up, and we see that there's actually two groups of age demographic who have roughly similar susceptibility to post-bereavement hallucinations. Like Callum said, there is an increased susceptibility in the advanced age category of 70 to 89, But there's also another group that seems to have basically the same susceptibility statistics by occurrence, and it's 30 to 39. Now, if we are seeing higher than average instances in this group as well, 
it clearly isn't a single metric occurrence of advanced age equals increased susceptibility. Now, just to be clear, I am not saying that advanced age doesn't increase susceptibility. I'm saying that it's a massive mistake in orders of magnitude to hang your hat on it even remotely being the most important vector to consider. Some of the studies I've been reading propose one alternative that actually makes a significant amount of sense, for example. When you're in your 30s, you're likely in an establishment phase of your life. You have a young family, you're in the midst of career progression, you're probably recently married. The loss of a spouse, for example, at that phase can create a vector above grief of future uncertainty tied to that person's absence and their relation to your future plans. Additionally, and unfortunately, this is also the age range where people are most likely to suffer the loss of a child which is a unique form of compound trauma. All this is to say that tying occurrence to a single vector and hanging your hat upon it is an obviously incorrect approach here. That correlation to advanced age has myriad alternate explanations that dissolve any type of explanatory power that data point alone might offer here. We know that the disciples um, at least would have been young at the time. Do we know that the disciples would have been young at the time? The Bible doesn't give us the age for any of them. They were old enough to have jobs, at least. Some speculate they could have been late teens, some much older. And, of course, there's no special reason the disciples wouldn't have been a range of different ages. The earliest church depictions of the disciples portray them as a spectrum of approximately Jesus' age to well above. Most Christians hold that Jesus was around 33 when he was killed. So, if any of the disciples were around the same age... That would put them squarely in that 30 to 39 age range of high occurrence group that Shannon identified. In videos like How the Church Probably Began, I've posited that only Peter need to have had a post bereavement hallucination to explain the historical data we have. Interestingly, Matthew 8 verse 14 mentions Peter's mother-in-law, meaning Peter was old enough to be married during Jesus' ministry. And the Acts of Peter tradition tells us he had a 10-year-old daughter around this time. Also, Peter miraculously paralyzed her to keep her sexually chaste, but that's a different story for a different time. The oldest known depictions of the Apostle Peter, like those found in the catacombs of St. Tecla, show him with white hair, which is consistent with most of the church iconography of Peter, balding or white-haired, showing signs of age already during Jesus' ministry, including in Da Vinci's Last Supper. Callum rests on 4th century church tradition for his case for the location of Jesus' tomb, so perhaps he also accepts this 4th century church tradition about Peter's appearance, making Peter exactly the kind of older gentleman that Callum notes have higher occurrence of PBH. To be clear, at best the data for PBH shows age correlation, so speculating about how old the disciples were is an entirely irrelevant enterprise. But this discussion was merely to demonstrate how Callum's age case fails on both sides of the equation. It's likely, just given the culture of the time, even Jesus' mother, who you might think would be the oldest person involved, she was probably middle-aged by our standards and, and so not subject to the kind of cognitive fragility of people in the later stages of life. The PBH studies say nothing of cognitive fragility. This is a bit of well-poisoning by Dr. Callum. I don't think we'd normally say it was a mental illness. We would say they occur in psychiatrically well individuals, and they're just kind of a one-off thing that just happens. But it's not normally characterized as 
kind of mental illness. Better. Normally with grief hallucinations, especially if they're as common as scientists seem to think they are, it seems like people who would be prone to them would have experience of them and would know them. And certainly people in the community would know of them. Would people in the community know of them? Or is it that most people don't mention them because they feel unable to talk about them or embarrassed about talking about them? Which is it? I think in order to explain the terminology of resurrection, it had to have been something considerably more concrete. And we know that the overwhelming majority of grief hallucinations are generally just of one sensory modality. So they will be either visual, in which case they just see someone who doesn't talk, or they will be auditory where they hear someone but they don't see them. Or I think about 1% of cases, I'm not sure the exact details, but I think it's 1% of cases are tactile, which means that they feel something. So this is pretty rare that they would feel something in a grief hallucination. Okay, so this is another claim that I'm actually just kind of perplexed by. There are no sources provided, so I went on a hunt to see where this claim of 1% and rarity of multiple sensory modalities came from, and I, like, I just couldn't find it. Before I present what I did find, let me explain a bit about why the claim itself that multimodality sensory hallucinations are rare didn't line up with my understanding of perceptual hallucinations. We talked earlier about how post-bereavement hallucinations aren't a specific established quality of hallucination. It's rather a context that increases the likelihood that an hallucination will take place. But what that will look like if and when it manifests isn't a constant pathology. So I'd expect to see varied qualitative experiences mitigated by independent factors relating to the individual psychology, which would create a distribution of types of hallucinatory manifestations. And in fact, that actually does seem to be what we see. I took a look through some meta-analysis research that compiled this very data. It aggregated post-bereavement hallucination experiences by type of sensory modality. And there's a range here. Any study that did include multimodality sensory experiences as a data point found significant instances of post-bereavement hallucinations having multiple simultaneous sensory components. And it looks to be that early on in the bereavement phase, that may be the most prevalent type of post-bereavement hallucination based on at least one of those studies. Again, that's something that would make some sense to me. You're in the most emotional upheaval and centered in your trauma experience in real time in the early phases. If that trauma response is what elicits the hallucination state, the instances themselves would be greater, leaving more opportunity for varied distributions of sensory experiences in multiple modalities, for example. That being said, just because I couldn't find the data that they're using, that doesn't mean that it isn't around somewhere. And I'd be interested in looking at it so that I could get the whole picture. But everything I've looked at is incongruent with that claim that these occurrences are rare and happen in just one modality of sensory experience. Yeah, so this is critically important, I think. So if you look at these cases, then there may be a case that I'm not aware of where they do genuinely go on and think that this person is, is alive again. But I'm not aware of any such cases. And the study seems to suggest overwhelmingly these people have insight. And insight in psychiatry means they're aware that what they're experiencing is pathological or is not real. Okay, so I just want to quickly touch on this declaration that people will know that they are hallucinating. I'd like to really, really, really strongly discourage anyone from using this type of language here. There's a danger to this assertion for several reasons, though I actually like I don't think that that's the intention here clearly. Hallucinations mostly occur when an individual is in an altered psychological state by definition, either acutely, situationally, pathologically. 
How any individual incorporates an hallucinatory perception is exceptionally contextually dependent. An otherwise psychiatrically healthy individual could be in an acute state that quite literally augments their relation to that hallucinatory experience in such a way that it's imperceptible from their actual perceptions of reality and in fact is incorporated into them. Above even this consideration, implanting this general idea that, you know, we'd know if we were hallucinating, it's just not correct. And holding the idea that it is could cause someone experiencing hallucinatory states to disregard them due to this false preconception that, I mean, if I was hallucinating, I'd obviously know. Psychosis, I think, is another non-starter. I mean, the idea that they would all just suddenly have the onset of a psychotic illness completely independently, that they would all just suddenly get schizophrenia or bipolar is probabilistically verging on impossible. And of course, we have evidence that they didn't have these things because people with those illnesses exhibit many other symptoms that we have no evidence for in the disciples and we have significant evidence against. So I think that's essentially impossible as well. Okay, so this is a total a total aside, but my interest is peaked here. I know that they're specifically discussing the disciples, but, but the only documented firsthand resurrection appearance is Paul. And I would die to know what exclusionary criteria they would use to say he couldn't have had bipolar disorder. I know it's literally impossible to diagnose someone who has been dead for 2,000 years, but hear me out here. Because I would not only argue that Paul can't meet any exclusionary criteria for bipolar disorder, but I, I would totally put it on the table. This is clearly obviously just a thought experiment because we can't assess Paul's symptomology firsthand. But I just want you to listen to these diagnostic criteria for bipolar mania and tell me I'm wrong. Inflated self-esteem or a sense of grandiosity. But I do not think I am in the least inferior to those super apostles. Decreased need for sleep. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. Increased talkativeness. Paul spoke to the people and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. Increase in goal-directed activity and psychomotor agitation. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Engaging in activities that hold the potential for painful consequences. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. I just can't see how Paul would meet any of these exclusionary criteria, and I'm also utterly dumbfounded that they weren't even talking about Paul. He's the only first-hand account that we have that says, yep, I saw him, there was Jesus, and they just didn't even address him. It's, it's baffling to me. It's, it's dumbfounding. And when they said that bipolar disorder just couldn't even be put on the table, immediately I thought about Paul because to me, he's the strongest case, and they just ignored him and then used exclusionary criteria that I don't even think that they could even, that, like they would have to admit that, I mean... Come on, come on. <laughs> One thing to bear in mind is that this is not an explanation of the empty tomb, the hallucination hypothesis. That's right. You, a, a comprehensive naturalistic explanation would need not only to be able to account for the, the appearances, but also the empty tomb. Or merely point out that most Roman crucifixion victims were not buried in tombs, but discarded in unmarked ditches or mass graves. It's incredibly easy to imagine that the thing that happened to most also happened to Jesus. Now, 
I I guess I'm inclined to think that that's not necessarily like a massive extra burden in just in the sense that like it's not too difficult to imagine a scenario where the tomb is um, emptied for some reason that that was kind of the trigger for these uh, grief visions or whatever. At least that's what I would say if I was a naturalist. Uh Oh, is Callum siding with me on this? What about Max? I'm basically less confident than some people that we can like very strongly rule out something like a, a kind of grief hallucination hypothesis with perhaps some kind of contagion or hysteria, you know, and then perhaps some false memories which start to crystallize over time. Something like that. If I was a naturalist, I think probably, you, you know, the best shot would be something like this. I think I'm going to save the rest of the shocking extent to which these resurrection experts actually agree with me rather than with capturing Christianity for the next episode. If part five is posted at the time you're watching this, tap on the thumbnail to continue. A huge thank you to Shannon Q for enlightening us all. If you haven't already, please go check out her channel, linked in the description. Help elevate the discourse. Bye! Later. Later.